If an injury is to be done to a man, it should be so severe that his vengeance need not be feared. That is Machiavelli. It is one way that Ryan Holiday could have begun his book, Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. Conspiracy is a fascinating book for a lot of levels, and we're going to loop it in to his other book, Perennial Seller, and we'll even talk a little bit about Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Before we do, if you've never heard me before, this is Michael Cernovich at Cernovich.com and Rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N.com, bringing you some book reviews. And my book review style is a little bit different than, than most people's. The traditional book review style is to say, hi, I'm here with the author. I'm going to interview the author a little bit. And that's kind of fun. But my writing style of book reviews has always been a little bit different if people have read them throughout the years. I incorporate what I've read into things that I know to be true about the world. I always highlight favorite quotes of mine, and I like to weave a book together with other books or other ideas. And that's what we're doing here because we're going to review conspiracy theory with the context of Perennial Seller, also by Ryan Holiday. Perennial Seller is the art of making and marketing work that lasts. And then we'll talk about Zero to One also. Conspiracy, to me anyway, is Ryan Holiday's sort of coming out book. I'd read Ryan Holiday's stuff throughout the years, and I think Ryan is kind of hard to avoid. If you're somebody who reads books, you've probably either been on his newsletter or you've read his posts or you've seen his medium. He's sort of everywhere, actually, at least if you're in a certain demographic. One thing you'll learn is that we all think we're special, but we're all just part of a demographic. That was revealed to me one day when I was with one of my best friends hanging out and I went to grab my wallet, but it was his wallet. And I said, did you buy this wallet off of a Facebook ad? He goes, I actually did. And then of course I drank mushroom coffee and the same friend does too. And the mushroom coffee I learned about from Facebook and and you realize, oh yeah, we're all so special, but the odds are 80% that if you listen to my podcast, you've heard of Ryan Holiday because why? Because demographics, People with a certain education level, income level, are going to run into the same people. So Ryan Holiday's earlier stuff, they they read a lot like a kind of like a college kid. Uh, a college kid finds a cool book, he writes about the book, but it was missing that soul or that spirit of your own understanding. And by the way, that model worked great for Ryan, so I'm not throwing shade at him at all. And Conspiracy, though, was is an impressive book because you can see him weave together themes throughout history and all the the book learning and everything that he did throughout the years pays off and he weaves it into the story of Peter Thiel's lawsuit against Gawker. A lot of you might not know about this um, or maybe you do. I'll be brief about that. But seven years ago, Gawker decided to out Peter Thiel as being gay. Peter Thiel didn't like that and Peter Thiel decided he was going to get revenge And Gawker, like most people, did not understand Machiavelli's warning that if you're going to try to destroy someone, and at that time that Peter Thiel was out, it was sort of a big deal. Nowadays, it might seem a little bit weird, but there are people listening to this who are working in very prominent roles in life, and would they like to be out as a Trump voter? I don't think so. At one point, being outed as gay was, was at that kind of level in terms of what you didn't want people to know. But Gawker, like most of the media, they never had anyone fight them because under America, libel laws make it impossible to sue someone. The media doesn't go by what's true. They go by what can they be sued for. If you're a public figure in America, 
the only way that you can sue someone is if they did actual malice when they wrote about you. Now, people who aren't lawyers go, well, malice, that means they were malicious. They wanted to hurt you. That isn't what it means. Actual malice is a term of art. It means did the person write with reckless disregard for truth or falsity? That is, did they entertain serious doubts about the truth or falsity of what they said? In other words, if they believed it, even if delusionally they believed it, there isn't much that you can do. And moreover, there's hyperbole. There are ways that you can characterize things that are dishonest, but that are hurtful or or wrong. So for example, if you make a joke or you do satire, the media can claim that that was true. This actually happened with John Scalzi, who's a left-wing writer. He wrote an article that he said was satirical where he confessed to rape, essentially. Now, he's not literally a rapist, but if someone wrote about him in that article, they could ignore that it was satire and there's not much he could do. In fact, he sought out legal advice and wanted to sue people who were treating that as if it were literally true. Now, is it honest to treat someone's satire as being literally true? No. But under the First Amendment and the way the legal system works, they they can do that. Something like that happened to uh, internet provocateur Rouge V also, where he wrote a satirical article about rape, and then the media said that he was advocating that rape should be legal, and there's nothing There's nothing you can do about it. You can claim it was satire, but they don't have to tell people it was satire. They just said, well, he wrote it. Here's what he said. They can leave out that context. So there really is nothing you can do, and because of that, the media was drunk with power, and this was especially true of bad faith actors like Gawker. They had they had no integrity and no reason to do it. Peter Thiel decided he wanted revenge. How was he going to get revenge? That's what conspiracy is about. He has a person who goes with an indirect attack rather than, rather than a direct attack. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, in life, what kills us is the punch we didn't see. You always get knocked out by the punch you didn't see. Those are the ones that hurt the most. And in life, we're always prepared for direct attacks. So imagine, it, again, you're Gawker. You can say, I can out Peter Thiel as being gay. What's he going to do? Sue me? He can't sue me for that. So you're prepared for that direct attack. Well, what, what's the indirect attack, though? The indirect attack could be if Peter Thiel were a little bit more uh, malicious, isn't the word, but... Peter Thiel could have just said, okay, I wonder, you know, let me look at this guy who wrote about me. I bet he has a drug dealer. I bet I bet there are things he doesn't want uh, known about him. I'm going to hire a private investigator to follow this person around, and then I'll get dirt on this person, and then I'll make that dirt public. See, that's an indirect attack, because if a direct attack is one that confronts what you've said in a way consistent with sort of the rules of the game. Peter Thiel decided... F your rules. I'm keeping it family friendly. F U C K your rules. And he went after an indirect attack against Gawker. He decided Gawker not only outed him, but has destroyed the lives of a lot of people in Silicon Valley, which, by the way, is true. These are, you think of these tech billionaires as masters of the universe and they're so strong and everything. Psychologically, they're pretty weak people, at least uh, social psychologically. When it comes to starting a business and everything, they have that monomaniacal obsession with it. But when it comes to bad press, these are very sensitive people. They're very fragile people. And the media can give people nervous breakdowns. And that has happened to a lot of people. In fact, happened to a lot of people who Peter Thiel knew. So he decided to go after what he called the Manhattan-based terrorist organization, i.e. Gawker. 
his way of going about it was it was indirect, but also direct. And here's what I mean by the hybrid approach. An indirect approach would say, okay, I'm going to keep a dossier on everybody who writes about me. And I'm going to find out dirt of everybody who writes about me. And it could be dirt like they're cheating on their girlfriend or something. You just decide you're going to destroy that person's life in a way that has nothing to do with what they've said about you. Okay, John Doe wrote about me. Okay, I'm going to look into John Doe. Oh, John Doe's cheating on his girlfriend. Here's proof of that. I'm going to let his girlfriend know. That's an indirect attack because it has nothing to do with what he wrote about you. So with Peter Thiel, it was a hybrid approach because he didn't sue Gawker for outing him as gay or for any of the specific stories that were written about his friend. He instead took the approach of going after Gawker through proxies. Gawker went after a number of people, and there were all kinds of lawsuits that were filed against Gawker, but the winning one was Hulk Hogan. I don't know if you people remember all of this, but Gawker posted a sex tape of Hulk Hogan with Bubba the Love Sponge's wife, and I, of course, I won't admit to it, maybe that's illegal, but a, a number of people saw that tape when it was originally posted on Gawker. I think it's impossible to find now. Don't look for it, and that isn't a wink, wink, nod, nod, don't look for it, that is a sincere rejoinder. And I, to be honest, I didn't ever anticipate there would be a lawsuit filed over this. The Hulkster is in there. Um, you know, he looked like he was well-equipped to do his job and with a beautiful woman. You, what, what, are your, what are your damages, right? I mean, let's be honest here. But if anything, it could be seen as kind of a brand-building Video. I imagine a lot, a lot of um, attractive women would have seen that and thought, okay, this is interesting. But it is under Florida law anyway, and part of the attack, and there's the, this is mentioned in the book, is you have to find the right case in the right form. So, for example, me, I'm a California degenerate, you know? If you put people like me on a jury, especially in a more liberal district or somewhere in New York, and said, oh, look, Gawker violated Hulk Hogan's privacy because they showed the the tape, most of us would be like, ah, I mean, he looked good good in the tape. What's the problem, guys, right? But in Florida, a very, very conservative rural part of Florida, or if the Hulk Hogan lived in Arkansas or somewhere, they would be mortified. That would They would view that as a complete breach of decency and propriety. And in that regard, they found the right form. Hulk Hogan, a more conservative county in Florida, and it was an invasion of privacy. It was revenge porn. And in a way, I'm being glib about it, which is maybe revealing about myself and how things that would be mortifying to some people are viewed differently. And again, that's why when you're plotting conspiracy as Teal was, you have to take all of these factors into consideration. You wouldn't, for example, have sued Gawker in New York. Because people in New York would have that sort of effect that I would have. Oh, come on. You looked good in that Hulk. What's the big deal? Whereas churchgoers in Florida would find that appalling. It was a different thing. So you have to find the right venue for these kind of attacks. So Teal had found his man to take down Gawker and he'd found it in Hulk Hogan. But nobody knew this. That's the beauty of hindsight. Everybody now knows that there was, in fact, a conspiracy. At the time, it sounded like a conspiracy theory because Nick Denton mentions that. He had told some people, there's just something about this Hogan case that doesn't feel right. I feel like somebody is funding the case. Nobody, again, had any idea. So that was a conspiracy theory. People were completely confused by this because Hulk Hogan's choices and how he was handling the lawsuit were a little counterfactual. And you can read the book to get into the weeds of this. 
But broadly speaking, Hogan released claims that were in, covered by Gawker's insurance policy. So why does that matter? Well, Gawker had a media insurance as lawsuit insurance. If somebody sues you, the insurance company agrees to pay out their claim. But there are specific legal claims that you can file that aren't covered by the insurance policy. What Hogan did, and by the way, um, insurance, media insurance covers not only any damages you would have to pay, but also legal fees. So for example, when before I released Hoax's movie, I knew it was going to be a great film and it might draw this kind of attack. So thank you, Ryan Holiday. You have probably saved my life in more ways than one through this book and you're reporting on Peter Thiel. But when I when I had hoaxed, everything was clear. We had releases. Everything was good to go on it. But I thought about Ryan's book. I go, man, I wonder if somebody might try to use hoax as a proxy way to go after me. So I got errors and omissions insurance for the film. Errors and omissions insurance means that if somebody tries to claim that I, you know, whatever, they had some problem with the film. And by the way, there's no credible lawsuit that could be brought for hoax. It was completely by the book. That said, my legal fees would be covered by the insurance policy. And then if I had to pay out damages, that would be covered by the insurance policy. This is pretty typical. What Hogan did was his lawyers released claims that require, and by the way, insurance companies are required to cover you. His lawyers released claims that required the insurance company to cover Gawker. So because of that, the insurance company goes, sorry, Gawker, um, none of these claims that you're being sued under have anything to do with this policy. So not only will we not pay your damages at trial, you don't, we're not going to pay your legal fees. So that's when Denton goes, hmm, this, this is weird. Why would you ever, because no good lawyer would ever let you release viable legal claims. Why would he do this? That's when Denton became a little bit paranoid. And that's where the conspiracy theory element came in. If there's no proof of something, then it's a conspiracy theory. But... There's, in a sense, there's proof that there was a conspiracy against Denton and Gawker because there's no other way to explain why Hulk Hogan would have dropped some claims. And the reason I am bringing up this distinction between conspiracy and conspiracy theory is because in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, he poses the following question. In Zero to One, Peter Thiel writes, The best entrepreneurs know this. Every great business is built around a secret that's hidden from the outside. A great company is a conspiracy to change the world. When you share your secret, the recipient becomes a fellow conspirator. That brings me to the question, what is the difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory? Level of proof would be, I think, the lawyerly answer. You have a sense that something is going on, but unless you can prove it, then, a, then it's a conspiracy theory. But today, conspiracy theory is tossed around even when there is all kinds of proof. And that's one of the central themes of the book Conspiracy is what happens when a conspiracy theory is true? At this point in the story, Nick Denton knows that Hulk Hogan has dropped claims that no credible lawyer would drop, and Hogan had a great lawyer. This causes Gawker to just bleed legal fees now, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And fees, if you're, if you're going to trial big litigation, six figures is not, um, well, six figures is typical. Seven figures is not unheard of. So then Gawker says, we will offer you $10 million, Mr. Hogan. $10 million to settle this lawsuit. $10 million is huge. And moreover, $10 million is a certain payout. Hogan says, no. Imagine now you're Nick Ditt and your Gawker's lawyers. What is going on? At this point, you would be, you would have no choice but to believe there's a conspiracy against you because Hogan is somehow funding his legal fees. He's dropped credible claims 
that allowed Gawker to lose his insurer. And now, of course, Hogan is going to walk away from $10 million. You now know that there has to be a conspiracy, but you can't prove it. Therefore, it's still in the realm of conspiracy theory. And you got to read the rest of the book to find out more about it. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. And Ryan Holiday kills the book. And that's why I wanted to tie it into another book of his, which is a perennial seller. Perennial seller is the art of making and marketing work that lasts. And I think that's why Ryan did such a great job with conspiracy is in a way it's a timeless book. It's a book about a topical subject. And there's, as a writer, you have a number of pressures. One is that, you know, you want to make money off your books. That's your profession. I always laugh when people call me a book merchant. Well, I mean, if you want me to write, you want me to podcast, and you should probably buy my books. But if you write a book about a subject that's topical and not timely, you might do well for a week or two, but you're not going to make any real, real royalties on it. And a book might take a thousand, two thousand hours to to write. So if you think about that, that's a full year of work, a full job. How much do you make for a full year of work? Well, most writers aren't making that from their book. Ryan does a great job by making it not just a story about a specific discrete event, but contextualizing it within history, contextualizing it within the confines, not within the confines of it, but contextualizing it within what Peter Thiel had written about, within historical plots. What he talks about in conspiracy are historical conspiracies that worked. For example, I don't, um, even though Mr. Holiday's a, a lefty, he wouldn't, so therefore he's going to be blind to conspiracies, but there's no doubt been a conspiracy against Donald Trump. People can use language like a soft coup and any number of terminology, but what what happened in the spying that had happened, including original reporting that I had broken, the Susan Rice unmasking story, was a conspiracy. The conspiracy was to sabotage Trump's presidency. That just can't can't be denied at this point. Although your ability to recognize and spot conspiracies are always going to be limited by your own confirmation bias. If you a lefty and you hate Trump, you would say, well, there's no conspiracy against Trump. Trump is being investigated. But then when you bring up the fact that none, this was unprecedented, then the person would say, well, of course it's unprecedented. Trump is an unprecedented threat to democracy. And that's how they avoid talking about what subjectively there was a conspiracy against Trump. And that's where people have a difficult time in thinking in their thought process and, and having their own ideas challenged is you could say the following. Trump is a terrible person. Yes, there was a conspiracy against Trump. The conspiracy was justified because Trump was an unprecedented threat to democracy. Now, we can get into the weeds of whether Trump is or isn't. And I'm, I don't really care to defend Trump or attack Trump. That's not the point of this. But you can't deny that the Strazek and Lisa and all the off-the-books investigations that happened on Trump, the unmasking ordered by Susan Paul and Susan Rice, I can tell you as a national security reporter, this was unprecedented. What Susan Rice did and the unmasking they did was unprecedented. And everybody who is within the community even admits it. But they go, it was okay because Trump was bad. It was a conspiracy though. Yet if you don't like Trump, you would say it's a conspiracy theory. Trump is alleged a conspiracy theory. He was never technically spied on. And that's where we are as a culture. We are... We lack an ability to just say, no, there is a conspiracy, it's alleged, and quite frankly, it's credible. That's why I would like to read 
an objective take by Holiday about what was done to Trump. And moreover, there is a perennial element to it, and that's why I'm bringing up the book again, Perennial Seller. Ryan's book is about how do you make work that lasts? This came out, I think, 2017, so I'm a couple years behind reviewing this book. I'm behind reading a lot of books, but this is a really good book on the mindset of writing, the mindset of creating, how do you make a book last is a really good process about the the creative process. And that also ties into Peter Thiel in Zero to One. Trust me, people. You always you always know there are going to be surprises if you've listened to a lot of my podcasts. But in Zero to One, Peter Thiel talks about the contrarian question. What is a truth about the world? He claims he, he asked people this in job interviews. What is one truth about the world that's controversial that most people don't believe. And I like asking people that question because it gives me a gauge of their thinking in a number of ways. One is that a lot of what people consider to be controversial isn't. So for example, if I say, what is what is one thing that you believe about the world that's highly controversial? A lot of people will say, well, I think that high carb, low fat is unhealthy and the food pyramid is actually a scam. And my answer to that would be, yeah, that's true, but that isn't that doesn't show me any kind of nuance or complexity. That doesn't show me that you've actually gone really deep into that. And by the way, that's not an insult to anyone. It's just an indication that you're you're not really that contrarian. You're right inside um, the belly of the bell curve. Contrarian is so bell curve distribution. I'm, I'm sure that you all know what that is. There's a probability distribution, and you have the belly of the curve, which is going to make up say 67 percent of political or philosophical or physiological attributes. And then the tails are the really French kind of stuff. And so you might have a belief that is only held by 25% of the population. You're still in the belly of the bell curve. But is are you really a contrarian if 25% of the population agrees with you? A contrarian would be someone who maybe 1% of the population would agree with, or maybe one-tenth of 1%, depending on how you want to look at it. And that's the kind of thinking, and you might believe something completely you know, absurd and, and obscene. So for example, if you would have said five years ago that Peter Thiel was bankrolling Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker as revenge for Gawker outing Thiel as gay, you would have been laughed out of polite society. That would have been a contrarian truth. That would have been a truth that no one has. Well, if you can write a book about a contrarian truth, then you yourself are going to have work that lasts. You are going to have a perennial seller. You are going to have something big. And that relates to the zero, zero to one books, Peter Thiel's book, because he talks a lot about the power of secrets and how great companies are founded on secrets and great companies find a secret that no one else knows. And then you find a way to capture the value of that secret. I, I would have said, for example, five years ago, what really put me on the map was I wrote about the secret of testosterone replacement therapy. This was something that, first of all, most people to this day don't even know about. And at the time, five years ago, people said, oh, if you go on TRT, you're going to have a heart attack and you're going to have Roy rage and all kinds of misconceptions. It truly was a contrarian truth. Not even 1% of the population would consider TRT to be reputable. And even today, probably, it wouldn't be. I don't think Peter Thiel's on TRT which in my view is based on other stuff I've read of his, I would view as kind of absurd. Like why wouldn't why wouldn't you be on TRT, especially if you're a man over 40? And there are people listening to this now. I bet you that fewer than 1% of 
people listening to this are on TRT. And this is a pro TRT crowd because a lot of people found my stuff through the TRT world. So that's, again, kind of a contrarian secret. And that's why there have been a number of people, Jay included, who have been trying to to get TRT clinics launched off the ground and they're just not working because the market isn't really there yet for TRT. And sometimes you're, sometimes what you know is such a secret that you're too far ahead of the market. I think Mark Andreessen talks about that, which is some of the best companies he invested in were great companies and they arrived a year or two too soon. You can be too soon to the market because you're burning through your capital. So for example, if I'd gone all in on a TRT clinic, I'm not an investor in TRT clinics, by the way, and I have no relationships with them, et cetera. But if a year or two or two years ago, I had put my entire investment portfolio into TRT clinics, I would be going bust right now, even though 10 years from now, that'll be the norm. TRT, uh, TRT will be completely normalized by 10 years. So you can have a great idea and get there too soon. But that said, you can still find a niche audience for it even years ago. And that was one of the secrets I said, okay, I'll openly talk about my experiences and things that I've done. And then you find out that it's a powerful secret. And then if you want to write a great book, your great book would be based on a powerful secret. The great books, the best books that we find are ones that talk about something and no one else has talked about before. Even, you know, there was even Neil Strauss had a big book, uh, The Game, Penetrating the Secret World of a Pickup Artist or something like that. The Secret World, that's a book that is going to sell. And that's a book that still sells to this day. And that would probably be the kind of book, even if he doesn't agree with the content, that Ryan Holiday would have agreed with. So The Perennial Seller I like because it gets you as a creator thinking differently. And that's what people need to do more often than not is just shifting your mindset, shifting your mindset into thinking about the world differently can oftentimes lead to into the, lead you into the right direction. The idea, for example, that there's a, well, the way the begin of the book is ideas are not enough. And I get that every day. Every, I got an idea. I got a film idea for you. Okay. Hoax took me 18 months and I would say 3,500 hours if you count the director's time, everybody's time, at least 3,500, let's probably 5,000 hours. So Hoax took 5,000 hours to do at a budget of 290,000 and I didn't take any money from it. So realistically, Hoax should have cost about a million dollars, five to 10,000 man hours. So people tell, I have an idea for a film. Okay, like, you know, Ryan says it much more PC than I is. He says ideas are not enough. The actress... Writer and comedian Sarah Silverman is often approached by aspiring writers asking for career advice. This is me reading from this book. I want to be a writer, they tell her. Her response isn't to encourage them or tell them how great they are or to ask to see their work. Silverman doesn't say, you can do it, or how can I help? Instead, she was blunt. Well, write, she says. Writers write. You don't wait to get hired on something to write. Which is a different way of how I put it. I say ideas ain't S-H-I-T. Nobody cares. F your ideas. No, I don't want to make your film. No, I don't want to write your book. No, I don't want to hear your idea for a film. You got you want to put up $300,000, 5,000 hours of manpower to do a film? Now we're talking. I want to do that. No, you don't. You don't want to do anything. That's People who have ideas don't want to do anything. People execute. I said, oh, I want to make a film. That wasn't an idea. 
it was the execution of the idea that made it happen. The planning, the grinding, the the traveling, the, the missing workouts because I'm back and forth here and there. That's what matters. And that is a mindset shift that people have to make. Don't tell anybody your ideas. Nobody cares. Successful people don't want to hear your ideas. Successful people don't want to hear your ideas. Successful people don't just put that tattooed inside your mind. They don't want to hear your ideas. We do want to see your stuff though, right? So people, when they tell me, oh, I have, I have an idea for a movie. I say, go make a trailer. I'll, I'll watch a trailer. Show me, oh, you can't do a two minute trailer, but somehow you're going to make a film. It isn't, and that's where the mindset comes in too, though, for me to take it in a little bit more of a positive direction. It isn't lack of resources holding you back because if you do, to a biblical parable, the parable of the talents, if you do great work with little, then you will get a lot. So some kid told me, oh, I'm a filmmaker. I want to go into journalism and everything. And I said, you're wasting my time. Where is your B-roll? Well, what do you mean? I said, if you're really a filmmaker, an aspiring filmmaker, every weekend when you're not working, you would be up shooting B-roll. You'd be taking pictures of City Hall and you'd be doing drone photos. You'd go to Joshua Tree. You'd go to the desert. You would be, where, even if you're local, and you would just be shooting B-roll. And you would learn how to do incredible B-roll. And then you would have a whole portfolio of stuff. That's, to me, the best way to filter out the BSers from the people who are executing. That's why when I did, I had an idea for the, the hoax movie thing. I told people, I don't want to hear your resume. Send me a trailer for hoax movie. Have a contest. Show me a trailer. Because if you can't do a trailer, you can't do a film. And if you are if you think you're too good to do a trailer for a contest, then fine. Maybe you think you should be working for Hollywood, but you're not working for Hollywood, right? The, the feelings of self-importance actually often hold people back too, which is people, some people say, well, I'm not going to do a trailer or enter a contest. I'm too good for that. Well, okay, but if you're an out-of-work filmmaker or you're in between projects, and there's nothing wrong with being in between projects as a filmmaker or a writer. Everybody is. The minute I'm currently an out-of-work filmmaker because the minute you finish a film, you're you're out of work. That, that's fine. But if you think you're too good to do a trailer to put in an audition, then why aren't you right doing the Hollywood thing? $10 million, $100 million things. Self-importance sets in. But even those people are doing auditions. Even those people know that you have to read lines for free. So with me, for Hoax, I said, okay, everybody wants to do a movie with me. Okay, let's see who does trailers. The directors did two trailers. Both trailers were great. They were different. Uh, and you can see the approach in Hoax. Uh, uh, director John Dutrois' trailer was more literal, and which I loved. And then director Scooter Downey's trailer was a little bit more creative, a little more artsy. And I'm more of a literal guy rather than an artsy guy, but they work together and they created the most beautiful hybrid where we don't have just the talking heads interview with people. And it's set beautifully and lit beautifully and stage relief and everything, everything came to pass. But that's not an idea. That's grinding. Not just me grinding, but them grinding. Processing footage, dealing with frustrations, computers crash dealing with marketing, promotion, all, all the, everybody trying to rip you off. Every, there's so much more into it. So the, the Perennial Seller is such a great book because I think it's a friendly mindset tune-up for people. 
which is it's very nice. I get to be a little bit meaner to people, but I just don't I don't care to hear anybody's ideas. Please don't send me your ideas. Don't tell me your ideas. If you have something done, launched, then that's certainly something different. And then of course, Ryan goes into, I should probably call Mr. Holiday. I don't know. Ryan seems more natural because holidays seems like the holidays or something like that. There's a bunch of good checklists though in the book. So for example, the creator of any project should try to answer some variants of these questions. What does this teach? What does it solve? How am I entertaining? What am I giving? What are we offering? What are we sharing? These might seem basic to some people, but the more advanced you become, the more the basics matter. And I didn't trip over my words there. The more advanced you become, the more basics matter. People who have never done anything would say, what do you mean? What does this teach? What a dumb basic question like that. But people like me who have actually done things, I return to this kind of checklist. Okay, I'm going to give a seminar this Saturday on Audacity. What am I teaching? What problems am I solving for people? I'm always thinking about that in my work. So for example, with this podcast, what problem am I solving? Well, you're either too busy or too distracted to read a lot of books or you don't know what books are good. Your problem, let's say you read a book a week. Your problem is curation. There are so many books out. How do you know if a book is great or not? Well, I'm telling you why these books are great. I'm telling you why Perennial Soul is great and why Conspiracy is great and why Zero to One is great. But maybe they're not on niche or maybe you listen to this and say, oh, it sounds like a good book, but I don't need to read the full book about the conspiracy and Gawker and Peter Thiel because I feel like Mike gave me a good summary and I can Google it and I can read an article in 20 minutes. It's just not to me worth broke treatment. Or maybe with Perennial Seller, you think, well, I already kind of got a handle on this stuff. I don't want to read it. Or maybe you pick it up and you skim it. Or with Zero to One, maybe you think you don't want to read it because it's about startups and tech, but that's actually not true. Zero to One is a book about philosophy, the philosophy of business, the philosophy even in, in some regards to life and seeking truth. There's, for example, it begins with, as we talked about earlier, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? That in itself is a philosophical question because anytime you're dealing with truth or an inquiry into truth, you're dealing with the genesis of philosophy. That's how philosophy began. What is true? What is reality? What is a good man? Philosophy is, of course, branched into all these different subcategories. So ethics is a branch of philosophy. And ethics says, what is a good man? What is a good woman? That would be a truth. You believe there is truth about a way that a man or woman should live. That is a philosophical question. So what important truth do very few people agree with you on? The truth about the world could be abstract and not business-based, or it could be a problem that you're solving about the world. So I'll give you a great example. I One truth that I believe about the world is that heterosexual men want to have young, youthful-looking faces and want to look better, or at least a lot of them do. Now, a lot of people go, oh, Mike, that's there's Nivea, there's all these skincare lines. But if you're a man listening to this, and you're a straight man, by the way, this is not to exclude gay men other than to say marketing is directed differently at people. Do you ever see a skincare that resonates with you? No, they market shavers to you, razors to you. Here's every kind of five different scientific truths about the razor, and this has five blades. But how many people listening here use hyaluronic acid, uh, vitamin C serum? use an overnight cream. That percentage of people is much smaller. It's actually tiny. So an important truth that I believe about the world that is business-based is that 
straight men will line up to buy skincare products that are marketed to them. And what do you mean by marketed to them? When you're telling people I have a problem to solve, and that's what Ryan Holly's book, The Perennial Seller, talks about. Because Perennial Seller, even though it's about art, the art of making and marketing work that lasts, this applies to any kind of business. How do you build a business that's going to last? Businesses that last solve a problem. If you, for example, obesity is a problem in America, it's going to be a bigger problem. That will never not be a problem until things get really bad. So if you're selling people books on how to lift weights, you're going to you're gonna do fine. Then it becomes more an issue of dispersion. But there's a commodification element. There are other challenges too that uh, Teal talks about in Zero to One, which is the commodification of an industry. That's why you have to have a niche. And that's a little bit different. But you're again, the point of the book is to get you thinking philosophically, thinking about big issues. And by the way, male skincare is not my very important truth that few people agree with me on. But I'm not going to say what this truth is because um, Peter Thiel says brilliant thinking is rare, but courage is even shorter is an even shorter supply than genius. Well, I don't think anybody doubts my courage, but there are things about the world that are going to happen that can be misused against me. So, for example, I said this years ago before anybody else said it. I said domestic terrorism in the United States is going to become a way of life, and we're now seeing that churches are being shut up, synagogues moss, places of worship, which was viewed as sacred. Well, this is all going to continue. And my contrarian truth would be related to the causes of that. And again, I'm not going to specifics, although one way to define a, or to find a contrarian truth is to say, if you can identify, and this is from Peter Thiel, if you can identify a delusional popular belief, you can find what lies hidden behind it, the contrarian truth. So for me, Going back to how I somehow got involved in politics and why I got out is I knew when everybody said it was impossible that Trump had a 3% ceiling, I knew that Trump was going to win. Well, what was the, the popular delusional belief? The delusional popular belief at the time was if you give someone unrelenting focus, you are somehow going to destroy them. We now see conservatives doing this with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar. They keep thinking, oh, we're just going to show another video of her gaffe. We're just going to show another video doing this. We're just going to show her doing this. Attention, attention, attention. Well, that's a delusional belief. The idea that giving people attention is going to destroy them ignores cognitive psychology, which shows that the more attention a person or a subject gets, the more people believe it's important. So when people saw all those attacks on Trump, they just said that, wow, he must be important. He must matter. This is an important person. This is an important person. And then due to the nature of democracy and how people believe and how weird everything is in this world right now, if you get a certain percentage of the people to believe you, you've won the election. So using, for example, Ilhan Omar, the national conservative media is just laying down tactical nukes on her as much as they can and she's just smiling because she only has to win her district. And her district views her as practically a martyr and a hero now because of all the national attacks. So the delusional popular belief is that if we just keep attacking people, then we're going to destroy them. That was old model thinking. That was something that I noticed was happening in 2015 with Trump. So for me, I said, yeah, Trump's going to win, even though at the time, that was viewed as an insane idea. Of course, with the hindsight, everybody says, oh, I, I knew he was going to win and blah, blah, blah. I got the receipts for me. Unlike others, there are timestamps of what I said. I'm not retroactively rewiring my mind, as most people are doing, to 
have them believe that they knew something before. They believed it. That again, philosophical thinking. You're talking about truth. What is a lie that people believe? Which is another way of discovering a contrary truth. One way that you might reframe the contrary question is to say, what lie do people believe about the world? What are the lies that we're being told that society is telling us? Then you find a truth. But that's a philosophical question. As that relates to business, you would look to, again, marketing opportunities. I believe that male vanity is good. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that because we're not supposed to be vain because we live in this uh, Christian, well, less of a monoculture now, but we're taught that pride goeth before a fall. So we're not supposed to be proud. We're taught that you're not supposed to be vain. Even there's a secular tradition that vanity of vanity, everything is vanity, or I think it's share. You're so vain. I bet you think the song is about you. Vanity is viewed as bad, where especially for men. And then there are heteronormative aspects to it that make, I'm, I'm a manly man. I don't care about how I look. Well, sure you do. Because if you're saying I'm a manly man, I don't care about how I look. You're creating an identity based on a look, based on being a manly man, because a manly man doesn't care how he looks, so you can't escape it. We all care. So my, my thing is is a delusion to think that men don't care how they look and that men don't want to look very vain and that male vanity is going to be a major, major, major business opportunity. But people think of male vanity only in terms of cars and watch this. Because that's male vanity. You want that big car, your status signaling. Well, what about instead of status signaling external goods, you're status signaling your internal goods by good health looking a certain way. That's, again, a contrarian truth, which doesn't, I'm not talking super deep things about the world in this podcast because we're not political right now. I'm just talking about a contrarian truth and building a business around it. And that's zero to one. That's how you're creating something out of nothing. Now, that is, of course, why it's called zero to one. It's a form of alchemy. This doesn't exist. Now it does exist. So creating male skincare lines is actually not zero to one. To prove that I've read the book, I can tell you that by the definition of zero to one, it isn't. Zero to one is something that never existed. So for example, PayPal. People take PayPal for granted, but sending money via email, I mean, it sounds a little weird, actually. You don't think of PayPal that way anymore. Fundamentally, that's what it was and what it is. You're sending people money via email. That, when you understand PayPal and what it is, that even sounds weird today. Ten years, of course, that would be out of the question, completely bizarre. That's a zero-to-one idea. And a zero-to-one idea is going to give you a monopoly. It's going to scale much larger. It's going to be different. You're not a commodity, so somebody can't come in and overtake you. There's no, there's a moat to it. So for example, with the male skincare line, a moat, the moat is what Warren Buffett calls something protecting your castle. Coca-Cola has a moat. Seize Candy has a moat. If you start a company, there's not necessarily a moat for you. Neutrogena could come in and outspend me on advertising $100 million to one, right? So there's no moat, that, and that's how you, then you create a commodity business, and those businesses maybe don't ever get the monopolistic advantage. So PayPal pretty much has a monopoly. Venmo's trying, Square's trying, but it, it would be fair to say that PayPal has a monopoly, and PayPal has a monopoly because it's a zero-to-one idea. Facebook was a zero-to-one idea. Facebook has a monopoly. Twitter has a monopoly. The monopolies are over different subject matters. Twitter's monopoly is on text-based distribution right? 
Facebook is where you go primarily to share memes and other, other things like that. Twitter is where people go to share breaking news, text-based content, very timely content. This is zero to one business. And then, of course, there's a zero to one in your life, the alchemy of your own life. How would you create a completely different life for yourself? That ties into it as well. So zero to one, great book. I could, in fact, do a whole episode on zero to one. And if you want me to, let me know in the comments below. But this one was a book stack. What I'm doing with the book stack is I want to tie in two, three, four, five different books and loop them together. So today we talked about Ryan Holiday's conspiracy theory, which involved Peter Thiel and Peter Thiel being involved in the conspiracy against Gawker, it would necessarily require us to look into his thinking, which was zero to one. And then the perennial seller tied into it as well, because conspiracy is a book to read. It's a book that'll last. It'll be a book that in 50 years from now, you're going to want to read, if nothing else, than to understand the time, the characters, the prime movers. And perennial seller is in itself a perennial seller because there's no shortage of a need for creativity. Now more than ever, we, we seem like we're overwhelmed with content, but now more than ever, we need great content. We need unique content. We need interesting content. I even hate calling it content, which is called art. So be sure to pick up these books or not. Let me know what you think of this podcast. This is a new episode. It's experimental. So if you don't like it, I, I'm okay with that. If you love it, let me know too. You can leave a review at iTunes, just click the little thing, leave a rating review, add a star to it, write me, let me know what your thoughts are. Thanks for listening in. This is Mike Cernovich at Cernovich.com and Rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N.com.